When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. If there's one thing you can say about us humans, it's that we tend to have short memories. It's easy to understand why. People lead busy lives and each day we are so inundated with new information, so bombarded with the next big thing, it can be difficult to remember a time when things were different. The 24-hour news cycle that came about in the 1980s with the launch of CNN is built around this idea. Have you ever noticed how something can be a major news story for a few days? Then people will all but forget about it just a few days later as that major news story gets shoved aside for the next one. Likewise, people also often tend to forget how different our parents' and grandparents' lives really were. Things we take for granted that were designed for public safety were often fought against tooth and nail by major industries. Take, for example, the automobile. Over half a century ago, the American auto industry fought against introducing seatbelts into their cars on the grounds that they'd be too expensive and the entire industry would collapse. In the 1970s, the industry fought against installing catalytic converters on cars to reduce air emissions for the exact same reason. And again, a couple decades later, they fought against airbags. Once again, on the grounds, they'd cost too much and it would mean the death of the industry. And yet, today cars are safer than ever. And most of us probably don't think twice about having these safety features in our vehicles. Along the same lines, there are many of us who either don't recall or are too young to remember a time when pill bottles didn't have child safety caps or those little tamper-proof seals below the lids. But those two are a relatively recent development, and they all came about in the 1980s in the wake of tragedy. At about 2.30 a.m. on September 28, 1982, a couple of Kane County Sheriff's deputies, Joseph Chavez and Al Swanson, met in the parking lot of the Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge and Restaurant in Elgin, Illinois. They were both working the midnight to 8 a.m. shift, and they stopped in the all-night restaurant to get some breakfast. When Swanson and Chavez got out of their vehicles and headed for the entrance, Chavez noticed a couple of cardboard boxes lying on the pavement next to the grassy median that ran between the parking lot and the main road. Each box was identical, about 10 inches wide by 10 inches deep. Curious, Chavez went over to get a closer look. Each box was embossed with the words Extra Strength Tylenol Capsules, along with the manufacturer's name, McNeil. According to the packaging, each box contained 12 six-packs of 50-count bottles of extra-strength Tylenol. 
One of the boxes was open. Two dozen Tylenol bottles remained inside, and two of those bottles had been opened as well. Strewn across the pavement nearby were hundreds of the red and white capsules, and in between the two boxes was a large pile of whitish powder. Chavez would later report that it appeared to him as if someone pulled apart and emptied hundreds of the capsules. He even found a couple of the capsules that appeared as if someone had attempted to put them back together again. Chavez knelt over the curious mess and picked up a handful of the capsules and examined them. Neither deputy knew what to make of it, but since Tylenol was not a controlled substance, they both just shrugged it off and went back to the restaurant and ordered breakfast. But as the two men ate, Chavez began to feel strange. A powerful headache came over him suddenly, and he began to develop a painful rash and swelling on his arm. When the deputies finished their breakfast, they decided to take another look at what they had discovered in the parking lot. This time, Deputy Swanson picked up some of the capsules. He scraped up some of the white powder and rubbed it between his fingers. He guessed that some enterprising drug dealers had probably gotten hold of the boxes and planned on cutting some cocaine with the acetaminophen. Still, they both thought it was odd why anyone would have gone to the trouble to actually put any of the capsules back together again. But the two officers didn't see any real evidence of a crime, so they got back into their patrol cars and drove off. But minutes later, Swanson was forced to pull over to the side of the road, when all of a sudden, he too became violently ill. A wave of nausea and a violent headache came over him. He had to get out of his car to vomit by the side of the road. And yet, despite both men having touched the discarded pills in the Howard Johnson's parking lot, and both suddenly becoming ill, neither man made the immediate connection that their discovery may have had something to do with their sudden illness. So they left the scattered pills and boxes of extra-strength Tylenol right where they found them. It wouldn't be until a few days later when people began dropping dead that the deputies realized the terrible mistake they had just made. I'm Nate Hale, and the tale I'm about to tell you is a bitter pill to swallow. And this is The Conspirators. Sixteen hours after the two deputies from Kane County discovered the open boxes of extra-strength Tylenol, a woman named Gina Kellerman went to her local Jewel Osco store in Elk Grove Village, about 19 miles east of the Howard Johnson's restaurant. She bought a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules and brought them home. The following morning, Wednesday, September 29, 1982, Gina's 12-year-old daughter Mary told her parents she felt sick. She was running a mild fever, and she developed a sore throat and a cough. Mary's father, Dennis, checked her temperature and told her that morning she could stay home from school. He then went into the bathroom and took the newly purchased bottle of extra-strength Tylenol from the medicine cabinet and opened it. He gave Mary one of the capsules. Then he returned to his bedroom and climbed back into bed. A few minutes later, Dennis heard Mary get up and go into the bathroom and close the door. Then, moments later, he heard a loud thud. Dennis got up and went to see what had happened. He asked Mary if she was okay, but he received no response. Then he opened the door and found his daughter lying unconscious on the bathroom floor. 
By the time the paramedics arrived, Mary was in full cardiac arrest. The ambulance rushed her to the Alexian Brothers Medical Center, but there was nothing anyone could do. Mary was pronounced dead at 10 a.m. At the time, the best guess doctors had was that the girl had suffered a sudden aneurysm or heart attack. That same Wednesday morning, a 27-year-old man named Adam Janis took the day off from his job. It was his anniversary and he planned on doing something special for his wife. He went to his local Jewel Osco store in Arlington Heights and bought steaks for dinner, some flowers, and a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules. That afternoon, Adam and his wife had lunch together. Afterwards, he began to feel a headache coming on, so he took two of the extra-strength Tylenol. Afterwards, he went to lie down in bed. A few minutes later, his wife went in to check on Adam, only to find him unconscious and convulsing. She called the local fire department and they dispatched an ambulance. They rushed Adam to the hospital, but he too was declared dead at 3.15 p.m. At approximately the same time Adam was being declared dead, a woman named Mary Reiner, who also went by the name Lynn, went to Frank's Finer Food Store in Winfield, about 25 miles south of Arlington Heights. There she bought a bottle of regular strength Tylenol. Just the day before, Lynn had checked out of the Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield after giving birth to her third child, a baby boy named Joshua. She returned home where her mother-in-law was watching Joshua along with her 21-month-old son, Jacob. When Lynn left the hospital, she'd been given a goodie bag full of useful items for new parents. She rummaged inside and took two extra-strength Tylenol that came in the bag. Not the regular-strength Tylenol she had just purchased. Within minutes, Lynn began to feel dizzy, and immediately after that, she collapsed to the floor and began to go into convulsions. The next person to fall mysteriously ill was a 31-year-old Illinois Bell telephone operator named Mary McFarland. Mary had been suffering a migraine headache all day. The previous evening, she had picked up a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules at her local Woolworth in Lombard, about 10 miles east of Winfield. When she got home that night, she dumped 17 of the red and white Tylenol capsules from the 50-count bottle into a small Dristan bottle she kept in her purse. Throughout the day at work, she consumed five of the capsules. And then at one point in her office's break room, she took two more. What Mary didn't know is she had been playing Russian roulette all day. She had been lucky which pills she consumed throughout the day. Right up until the moment, her luck ran out. Within minutes, Mary began to feel dizzy. She told a couple of co-workers she didn't feel well, right before collapsing to the floor. The divorced mother of two was kept on life support until 3.18 a.m. when she was taken off and pronounced dead. Doctors initially believed she'd either suffered an aneurysm or a stroke. Lynn Reiner, the woman who had just come home from the hospital with her newborn son, lingered on for a little while longer, but she too was taken off life support at 9.05 a.m. and pronounced dead. The news of Adam Janice's sudden death hit his family hard. Adam's 24-year-old brother Stanley and Stanley's 18-year-old bride Teresa left the Northwest Community Hospital, where Adam had been pronounced dead. They headed back to Adam's house to comfort Adam's now widow. Stanley suffered from a bad back, and by the time he got to the house, his back was killing him. When he went into the kitchen, the bottle of extra-strength Tylenol was sitting on the countertop waiting for him. Stanley popped two of the pills in his mouth and swallowed them. Teresa tearfully phoned her parents to tell them what had happened. 
After she hung up the phone, Teresa too picked up the bottle of extra-strength Tylenol and swallowed two capsules. Stanley returned the bottle to the medicine cabinet, then was heading outside to smoke a cigarette. But before he got there, he too collapsed and began going into convulsions and foaming at the mouth. Teresa frantically phoned the Arlington Heights Fire Department, but by the time the emergency medical team arrived on the scene, she too passed out right in front of them. Helen Jensen, the Elk Grove Village public health nurse, was sent to Adam Janice's house to investigate. She looked around for some common factor between the three people, something they would have all consumed that could contain poison. She eventually zeroed in on the bottle of extra-strength Tylenol. She found a receipt for the bottle in the trash showing it had just been recently purchased. When she poured the capsules out and did a count, she realized six of the 50 pills were gone. Two capsules per person. It would take some time before authorities from the different locales began to connect the dots. At first, doctors dismissed Helen Jensen's suggestion that the Tylenol had been poisoned. But when other paramedics and doctors began to report a rash of sudden deaths all within a couple days, they began to compare notes and realized the one thing all these seemingly unrelated people had in common was they had all consumed extra-strength Tylenol right before they collapsed. Dr. Thomas Kim, the medical director for Northwest Community Hospital, was dumbstruck when he learned that two more of Adam Janice's family members had died suddenly. Suspecting poison must be involved, he phoned Dr. John Sullivan at the Rocky Mountain Poison Center in Colorado. Dr. Kim described the symptoms for all three patients, and Dr. Sullivan said it sounded to him like cyanide poisoning. When one of the medical examiners took a whiff of one of the Tylenol bottles and smelled the telltale odor of bitter almonds, he began to realize that Helen Jensen had been right. Cyanide is known to emit a smell some people equate to the smell of almonds. Cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant, meaning it cuts off the oxygen supply to the body, therefore suffocating the victim where they stand. Dr. Kim sent blood samples from his patients to a local lab for testing. By Thursday morning, the results were in. Each of them contained cyanide levels that were so high the lab technicians initially thought their readings had to be off. The last poisoning victim discovered was 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Jean Prince. She had purchased a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol at a Chicago-area Walgreens store the same evening the Janices were all dying. Because she was scheduled to fly out the following Thursday morning, no one missed her until her sister went to Paula's apartment looking for her at 5.15 p.m. They found her dead body on her bathroom floor. Because police in different departments were conducting five separate investigations into mysterious deaths, it took approximately 18 hours before the investigators determined the common denominator had to be the Tylenol. Upon realizing what was going on, Dr. Edmund Donahue, the Cooks County Deputy Chief Medical Examiner, warned the public against taking Tylenol. Within days, both the governor of Illinois and the mayor of Chicago, Jane Byrne, would also offer warnings to consumers. Although at the time the cases of poisoning seemed confined to the Chicago area, no one really knew just how far and wide this might go. Johnson & Johnson, the company that owned the Tylenol brand, has since gone down in history as the literal textbook example of how to handle a public relations crisis of this magnitude. McNeil Consumer Products, the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary who manufactured and supplied the extra-strength Tylenol for the Chicago area, would soon order a massive recall of 4.7 million capsules from store shelves. 
Three more unopened bottles containing cyanide would eventually be found. Most of the tainted bottles of pills were from lot number MC-2880. By October 1st, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was advising consumers against taking extra-strength Tylenol after the discovery of a second contaminated batch was found. FDA investigators discovered another contaminated bottles of Tylenol capsules on a store shelf in Schaumburg. On October 1st, Johnson & Johnson announced they were ceasing manufacture of extra-strength Tylenol. Right away, the company began drawing up plans for new tamper-resistant packaging. On October 7th, Mayor Jane Byrne banned the sale of Tylenol in Chicago and instructed the public to flush any pills they'd already purchased down the toilet out of concerns for public safety. But in terms of a criminal investigation, this was a major mistake because people all across the city began flushing potential evidence of the crime down the toilet. By this point in the investigation, about 150 federal, state, and local authorities were working the case. The FBI got involved and posted a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of whoever tampered with the medication. Before we continue, I want to tell you about something else that will be of interest to listeners of The Conspirators. Pretty soon, you're going to get an extra chance to hear from me again. If you've been listening to my show for a while, then you know history is full of important dates in which some truly heinous things have occurred. The Parcast Network has a show that commemorates these dates in true crime history. Today in True Crime is the new daily podcast from Parcast that takes you back to the most significant events in true crime that happened each day in history. And I'm happy to tell you that I'm doing guest hosting duties on Wednesday, March 11th. Parcast has long been a pioneer in the podcast universe, and there hasn't been a daily true crime show quite like this one. So I'm really excited I got a chance to guest host. Be sure to follow Today in True Crime now on Spotify so you never run out of true crime content again. And don't forget to catch me on Wednesday, March 11th, on Today in True Crime. And now, back to my show. By now, most investigators were acting under the assumption that these crimes were the work of a lone madman. Legendary FBI criminal profiler John Douglas aided in creating a criminal profile of a disaffected loner who felt inadequate and wanted to do something that made him feel important. Investigators came to believe that whoever this lone individual was, he or she had likely purchased a few bottles of extra-strength Tylenol, took them home, and poured out the medication. They then refilled them with a commonly available form of potassium cyanide and placed them back on store shelves on the same day, September 28. All of the poison packages were placed right in front of the shelves where they would be the first to be purchased. During the course of the investigation, two key suspects emerged. One of these was a man named James Lewis. On Wednesday, October 6th, 1982, an extortion letter arrived at Johnson & Johnson's World Headquarters demanding $1 million in order to make the killing stop. The letter writer bragged that he had spent less than $50 on this endeavor, and he described his murder and extortion scheme as a bitter pill to swallow. Investigators would eventually be able to trace this letter using fingerprints and other amateurish clues left behind to a man living in New York City under an alias whose real name turned out to be James Lewis. To say James Lewis was an odd character would be an understatement. In 1978, he was charged with murdering a neighbor whose dismembered remains were found stuffed into bags hidden in his attic. Remarkably, Lewis managed to have all charges against him in the man's death dropped after the judge ruled police had searched his home illegally. 
Although Lewis would eventually be sentenced to 20 years in prison, of which he would serve 13 for sending the extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson, investigators have never been able to conclusively tie him to being the one who planted the poison Tylenol all around Chicago. At the time of the murders, Lewis was dead broke, and the FBI could never find any evidence he even had the money to travel to Chicago, much less commit the murders. In 2010, both Lewis and his wife submitted DNA samples and fingerprints to authorities. But nothing seems to have come of that either. Although it should be pointed out that Lewis, after being caught, offered investigators his expertise by describing in detail how he would have poisoned the Tylenol if he really had been the guilty party. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? They're real stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The other promising suspect was a dock worker and self-proclaimed amateur chemist named Roger Arnold. Arnold is especially interesting because he actually worked in the Jewel Osco Stores Distribution Center, where he may have had access to the extra-strength Tylenol that ended up on store shelves. Arnold had a history of several brushes with the law. When police raided Arnold's home, they discovered copies of the Anarchist Cookbook, a homemade chemistry lab, and a one-way ticket to Thailand. On top of that, Arnold admitted to investigators that he had recently purchased cyanide for some unspecified reason. But he also claimed to have gotten rid of it. There even came one point during the investigation where police investigators tried to tie Arnold to two other individuals much more closely related to the case. One of these was Harold Firon Sr., the father of Lynn Reiner who worked at Jewel as a truck driver. The other was Ed Reiner, Lynn's husband. It was evident that detectives were growing increasingly desperate as the investigation wore on. Several investigators from the police and FBI developed a theory where Lynn Reiner's murder was a conspiracy committed by her father, husband, and Roger Arnold, and that all the other bottles of extra-strength Tylenol planted around the city had been done to confuse the matter. Several news reports from the day actually described how police had zeroed in on three unnamed suspects who had to be Arnold, Fearon Sr., and Ed Reiner. But police could find no evidence to make their theory stick. And when you get down to it, it just doesn't make much sense either. To this day, you'll still find articles describing Roger Arnold as a key suspect, although once the conspiracy story began to fall apart, Fearon Sr. and Ed Reiner don't get mentioned anymore. With all the media attention going on surrounding Arnold, in the summer of 1983, the man ultimately snapped and went out with a gun looking for revenge against Marty Sinclair, the bar owner he believed outed him to the police. But Arnold ended up shooting the wrong man, a total stranger named John Stanisha, whom he mistook for Marty Sinclair. In January 1984, Arnold was convicted of second-degree murder 
He was sentenced to 30 years in prison, of which he served 15. He died in June 2008. Over the years, police have looked at a handful of other suspects in the Tylenol murders. One of these was a woman named Lori Dan who poisoned and shot several people in a May 1988 killing spree around Winnetka, Illinois. Yet another name that popped up in 2009 was none other than Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. Although police were never able to tie either of them or any other suspects directly to the poisonings. When the FBI reopened the investigation in 2009, they even took another crack at trying to tie James Lewis to the murders. They raided Lewis's home and carried out several boxes of potential evidence, but in the end, they were never able to make an arrest. Something else that further complicated the investigation were the number of copycat crimes that followed the Chicago Tylenol murders. Perhaps most notable among these was a woman from Auburn, Washington named Stella Nickel, who murdered her husband in 1986 for the insurance money by poisoning him with some cyanide-laced Excedrin capsules. But Stella's own greed proved to be her undoing. Her husband's death was originally cited as emphysema, but Stella really wanted her husband Bruce's life insurance policy's double indemnity clause to kick in, which would only do so if his death was ruled a homicide. So to cover her tracks, Stella planted another tainted bottle of Excedrin in a local store that was then purchased and used a week later by a 40-year-old bank manager named Sue Snow. Investigators were able to determine that Sue Snow died of cyanide poisoning. It was after that determination was made that Stella Nickel went back to police claiming she believed her husband had been poisoned as well. But Stella's story seemed suspicious to police, and she would eventually be arrested and sentenced to 90 years in prison under new product tampering statutes Congress enacted following the Chicago Tylenol murders. Police have continued to investigate leads all the way up to today in the Chicago Tylenol murders. In 2012, author Scott Bartz published his book, The Tylenol Mafia, in which he paints a compelling alternate theory, not so much as to who actually committed the murders, but rather how it was done. And if Bartz is to be believed, then it would completely change the commonly held theory that a lone, deranged individual planted the poison capsules in stores. Bartz, you see, was a former Johnson & Johnson employee turned whistleblower, and he believes that whoever poisoned the extra-strength Tylenol did so not by planting doctored bottles of pills in Chicago-area stores, but rather by tampering with the pills in the supply chain long before they reached store shelves. Long before Tylenol reaches store shelves, it passes through numerous facilities in the manufacturing and distribution process. Everything from initial construction to the assembly lines that fill the bottles to the warehouses that eventually send out cases full of capsules for store delivery. This is actually an important distinction, because from a liability standpoint, if it were proven to be true the pills were poisoned by a Johnson & Johnson employee somewhere along the supply chain, then the company would suddenly be liable for massive lawsuits. But if the pills were placed on store shelves by a lone individual, after the fact then the company wouldn't be liable at all. Before the murders occurred, extra-strength Tylenol was the number one pain reliever in the country with 35% of the market share and an estimated $400 million in sales annually. But as soon as news broke about the cyanide lace capsules, that number dwindled to almost nothing. 
Following the mysterious deaths, three lawsuits totaling $35 million were filed against Johnson & Johnson by families of the victims, while a fourth class action lawsuit demanded refunds for all Tylenol purchases in 1982. A $600 million buyback. Bartz believes that Johnson & Johnson, working hand-in-hand with investigators and the FBI, managed to quash any suspicion that the tainted Tylenol came from their supply chain in order to stave off further lawsuits that potentially could have bankrupted the company. As evidence of this theory, Bartz points to a couple of facts that do seem difficult to dismiss. One of these was the discovery made on September 28, 1982 by Kane County Sheriff's deputies Joseph Chavez and Al Swanson. Of the two distributors' boxes of extra-strength Tylenol they found open in the Howard Johnson's parking lot. To this day, no one has ever come forward with a good explanation as to where those boxes may have come from. Although doctors have said that the two deputies both began to exhibit symptoms consistent with absorbing cyanide powder into their skin. Chavez and Swanson have both publicly admitted their regrets to not having gone back right away and retrieved much of the evidence. By the time they did return, most of it was gone, and what little was left had been run over by numerous cars. One of the officers did submit a few samples of the pill casings they found for lab testing, but to this day, those lab results have never been made public. The other incident that may even be more difficult to explain away surrounds the death of Lynn Reiner. As you may recall, Lynn Reiner purchased a bottle of Tylenol from the Frank's Finer Food Store in Winfield. The problem was Lynn purchased a bottle of regular strength Tylenol, and by all accounts only the extra strength variety was poisoned. Police found the bottle of regular strength capsules, although the evidence points to Lynn Reiner actually consuming some extra strength Tylenol capsules that came in a sealed pack, not an easily accessible bottle. It also seems unlikely Lynn would have been able to confuse the two capsules. Regular strength Tylenol were gray and white, while the extra strength pills were red and white. So where did Lynn get the extra strength Tylenol? According to her family, Lynn was given a goodie bag by the hospital the day before her death when they sent her home with her newborn son. Inside that bag was a blister pack sample of extra-strength Tylenol. But this creates a major problem with the theory about the lone killer roving from store to store planting bottles of poison capsules. Scott Bartz points out in his book that if Lynn Reiner received the poison pills from the hospital supply chain, then it blows up the entire theory about the deranged lunatic going from store to store. A disgruntled employee somewhere along the supply chain makes much more sense in that case. To this day, Johnson & Johnson vehemently denies the tainted capsules came from their supply chain. As evidence of their innocence, they point to the fact that some of the bottles came from two different lot numbers that never came in contact with one another anywhere along the line which admittedly does tend to drive a stake into the theory put forth by Bartz. Although Johnson & Johnson is lauded to this day for their massive recall of Tylenol following the murders, and has often been cited in textbooks as the gold standard of a company stepping up during a crisis, the truth might be a little more complicated than that. According to Bartz's book, Johnson & Johnson actually delayed announcing a massive recall for a couple days while they decided what to do. And even then, that recall only came after mounting public pressures to do the right thing. What's worse is that all the recalled Tylenol taken off store shelves was sent back to Johnson & Johnson and destroyed, undoubtedly destroying valuable evidence in the crimes as well. 
In more recent years, Johnson & Johnson came under public fire for intentionally trying to conduct a clandestine recall of more than 88,000 Motrin tablets. In 2010, it was revealed that Johnson & Johnson sent out thousands of undercover operatives to stores across the country, buying up thousands of defective Motrin tablets. This wasn't an isolated incident, either. The company was also sued by the mother and father of a child named Rivermore, who died in July 2010 after ingesting tainted children's Tylenol. Like the case involving the defective Motrin, Johnson & Johnson secretly bought up bottles of the product instead of issuing a public recall. This isn't to say Johnson & Johnson is some secretly evil corporation, but they are a multi-million dollar business whose first job is to protect their bottom line. The days following the string of deaths in Chicago were a chaotic time, and Johnson & Johnson do deserve credit for stepping up and eventually recalling their product, even though it cost them millions of dollars. They also quickly took the extra steps to create new tamper-proof packaging and also to phase out the use of capsules in favor of the much more popular and less easy-to-contaminate caplet form. In fact, one further bit of scientific evidence Johnson & Johnson has put forth proving the poison capsules could not have come from their supply chain was their claim that the cyanide would have corroded the gelatin capsules over time had they been sitting in some warehouse for days or weeks at a time. But Scott Bartz in his book discredits this story too. He points out that other scientists conducted their own tests to see how quickly cyanide would dissolve the gel exterior of the capsules. And he says they actually last a very long time. In fact, he mentions that an NBC News broadcast several weeks after the murders occurred showed video of some of the actual tainted extra-strength Tylenol capsules that were recovered at one of the crime scenes. And they appeared perfectly fine. Following the murders in 1982, new product tampering legislation was enacted into law. Today, practically every consumable product on the market has some sort of safety seal on it. So, at least we can take comfort in the knowledge that our drugs and our food supplies are safer than ever, right? On February 7, 1986, a 23-year-old stenographer named Diane Ellsroth from Westchester County was staying with her boyfriend at his parents' house. When she began to complain, she wasn't feeling well. Her boyfriend gave her two extra-strength Tylenol. The next morning, Diane was found dead in her bed. An autopsy revealed that Diane had died from cyanide poisoning. Police discovered that Diane had ingested two extra-strength Tylenol capsules tainted with cyanide. They examined the bottle the pills had come from, and they found three more capsules containing poison inside. Diane's boyfriend said the bottle came from a package that had been unopened and recently purchased by his mother. He was able to produce a receipt showing the bottle had been purchased in a nearby A&P supermarket. No one noticed any signs of tampering prior to opening the bottle. Detectives investigated the family, but could find no obvious motives why any of them would have wanted Diane dead. She wasn't pregnant, nor was there any life insurance policy against her. And no one seemed to hold any animosity toward her. Police canvassed the area for other potential tainted boxes of Tylenol. Twelve days later, a box was found in a Woolworth store in Bronxville that contained several poison capsules. Johnson & Johnson claimed the two bottles of Tylenol had been packaged at different plants. So, therefore, they could not have been tampered with at the distribution level. The FBI investigated and at first said the packages contained no visible signs of tampering. Although later on they changed their story and, without explaining further how this could have been accomplished, they said the bottles had shown signs of tampering after all. 
The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thanks so much to Amy for signing up and joining the cause. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. In fact, by the time this comes out, I'll have uploaded my longest mini-sode to date. If you're not on Patreon but still want to help us out, another great way you can do so is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your Apple reviews helps boost us in the rankings and spreads the word to more people. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on many of your favorite podcast apps. We're also on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire backlog of shows. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time. And be sure to check out my guest appearance on Today in True Crime on Wednesday, March 11th.